Today, I'm joined by Chris Hulak, the co-founder of Octopus Group. They employ 750 people and have over £9 billion under management. Octopus was started in his bedroom in the year 2000. He left a solid and stable job with Mercury to set up his own fund management company in his mid-20s. We learned in this episode that perhaps unsurprisingly, it took a couple of 20-somethings quite a while to raise their first million pounds to invest in Britain's entrepreneurial company. But by the year 2000, they had achieved a solid scale of fund management and began to think more about the other problems that they could tackle. This came from the entrepreneurial team that they had created. Mac, one of their fund managers, pitched them an idea about solar panels and now he heads up the renewables division, employing 80 people and having invested three billion pounds into renewable energy. This is where they developed their consumer-facing energy supplier, Octopus Energy, which is probably what the company is now most known for, having amassed 2 million customers in just five years. And we'll be interviewing the CEO of that, Greg Jackson, later in the series. Chris talks about the different routes that they have taken on the journey from being a startup to the major institution that Octopus now is, and the more they can and want to disrupt other industries such as healthcare. They started with just the yellow pages, their girlfriends paying the rent, and a one-pager with some ideas scrawled on it. We talk about how some of the best ideas can come from the most unexpected of places, and how they encourage their employees to pitch ideas through their springboard programme and how the government can expand their springboard programme to build an army of entrepreneurs. But first we start with the story of Chris working in a gory lab at the height of the BSE crisis. Just before we start though, I wanted to mention that I write a semi-regular newsletter on the issues covered in this podcast, but also some of the other political issues. You can sign up by checking out the show notes below. Thank you. Welcome to today's show, Chris. We start by asking everyone who's coming on in the second series, what was the work experience that you undertook and also what was your first paid job? Hi, Jimmy. Uh, Well, great to be here. Let me take you back 30 years. So it was just after my GCSEs and the bit of work experience I did that summer was uh, spending six weeks at one of the government's research laboratories. I was particularly keen on science at the time. I was about to start doing science A-levels. And so I managed to get a role working in a lab testing cows' brains for a disease called BSE. Your young listeners may not know much about BSE, but if you go back 30 years, this was a really big deal. It was causing all sorts of problems in the country. Animals were being slaughtered to try and deal with this disease. And my job was to help people in this research lab process slices of brain to see whether these deceased cows had actually got the disease or not. A great introduction to life in a lab, pretty gory at times and quite dramatic in many ways for a 16 year old. But it also really showed me that I didn't really want a life in a lab. That wasn't for me. I put it down to a great experience. It was a great summer work with some really fun, fantastic, dedicated people trying to save the country from this really quite nasty disease. But it changed my perspective on what kind of career I wanted and really led me to conclude that moving into a job in finance and investment was probably where I was going to be much more suited. It's interesting you talk about it because it has almost slipped from our conscious as a country. As you say, at the time, it, it dominated everything, similar to the way the pandemic is now. It dominated the news. And you know sometimes it was quite difficult, particularly for the farming community, to see a way through it. Like you say, some of the great value of work experience can be knowing that you don't want to go into a particular industry. And so what was your first paid job? 
Well, that really came about after two internships I'd done when I was at university. And I totally agree. One of the real values of work experience is to get a feel for things. And it's something that I'd always encourage people to do is try different jobs. It's a very long career if you're stuck in a job you don't enjoy. And so when I was at university, I did two internships, one with an investment bank and one with a fund management company called Mercury. And I really enjoyed the fund management one. So I then ended up applying to their graduate scheme, being accepted onto that. And so I started my first full-time permanent job at Mercury Asset Management in September 1997. Really great place to learn, probably 25, 30 other people on the graduate training program, some really bright people from all sorts of backgrounds, different countries and so on, and a great place to learn the kind of nuts and bolts of fund management. Of course, on that 2530 cohort was Simon, who you went on to found Octopus with after just a few years at Mercury. Well, exactly. Yeah. So it was one of these bits of good fortune, I suppose, that we got to know each other during the course of the graduate program. We ended up working together on the global equity team at Mercury, along with Guy, who was the other founder of Octopus. We just realized in late 1999, early 2000, that we had the same sort of passion for wanting to set up our own company. We really loved the idea of investing into smaller businesses and to really backing entrepreneurs, helping them to grow their companies. And so we thought, what could be a better way of doing that than trying to start our own company to do that, to raise funds? and to be investing in UK smaller companies, something which we weren't really able to do at Mercury. So with perhaps a a slight rash of youthfulness, at a time when very few young people really were starting companies, we set up Octopus in my living room. We had one phone line, one copy of the yellow pages. We didn't really have anything like a fancy business plan, had about a sheet and a half of paper with a few ideas sketched out on it. And we started trying to find our way in the world, calling up lots of people, pestering them for meetings, We had lots and lots of people tell us we were mad. We had people shredding our emails and telling us that we would never get anywhere. But I think maybe through force of personality, determination and a year of hard work, we managed to raise a bit of money to start the business and Octopus was born. Was there any point in that first year where you thought the naysayers might be right in what they were saying? Because it is an incredible story to kind of start out like that. And it's changed so much. The opportunities for entrepreneurs have become so much more plentiful. But like you say, sitting down with the yellow pages, which our younger listeners will also have to Google that as well, it must have been quite daunting. Were there points when you thought we're not going to be able to make this work? Well, it was really hard. We had a little bit of savings to fall back on, not very much. I think all of us had to get our girlfriends to help pay our rent through that first difficult year. We had no income at all for 10 or 11 months. And there just wasn't the infrastructure back then in terms of established angel networks to back entrepreneurs. Really hard to raise that early money that we needed to start the business. And something which really toughened us up. I always think it's one of those times when we're really lucky that we weren't sole founders because it meant we had people to share that challenge with. You could go for a beer in the evening and together we were all going through the same thing. And that was really helpful, I think, because it was definitely difficult. It certainly made us realize that starting a business is not an easy thing to do. In the end, you need immense determination. You need real passion for what you're doing. You've really got to believe in yourself because you're fundamentally trying to persuade people. We were at the time 23, 25, 26 years old between the three of us. We didn't have a whole lot to offer other than our determination to build a business and our plans which we could articulate. But we hadn't got a track record of any great note. We just had that vision and passion. And that's a hard ask to get people to invest a couple of million pounds in a business at that stage. But throughout that difficult 2000, when the stock market was falling week by week, NASDAQ, I think, hit its peak pretty much the day we resigned from Mercury. The tech boom had come to an end. 
wasn't an easy time to be raising money, but I think probably one of our best ever achievements was to do that. And it told us a lot about what was going to be needed to be successful in, in running the business after that. And it spawned so much more in the last 20 years. And we were just talking beforehand about everything that Octopus now entails. And actually, you set up Octopus Energy five years ago under the Octopus umbrella. And I just wondered if you could talk to us a bit more about how the companies evolved, because your mission statement talks about wanting to improve lives. And I know you've talked on the record about you wanting Octopus to be in every home in the UK, but you're also scaling internationally now at a pretty quick rate as well. So can you just talk us through the evolution of the Octopus story? Yeah, absolutely. So today, I think we describe Octopus. It's become a group of companies investing in the people, the ideas and the industries that will help change the world. And that really has always been our vision. I just don't think 10 or 20 years ago, we would have articulated in quite that way. And of course, when you start a business, you can have big, grand plans for the future. You've got to live it day by day. A business grows and evolves bit by bit. That initial focus on UK smaller companies, UK venture capital, was what powered the business in the early years. And then there was a point in about 2010 when we started to achieve some scale in those areas, but we were looking to see how best to expand the business. I remember one of the young fund managers at Octopus came and stood by the desk that Simon and I sat at. He was talking about this growing trend for solar power in other countries in Europe. And he was really passionate about it. But I remember thinking that night, well, no, I can't imagine why we'd invest in that area. There were like dozens of reasons why I thought it wouldn't work. But Matt was very persistent. He kept coming back to talk to us day after day. And after a few weeks, I said, OK, get on and, and try, see what you can do, Matt. And today, Matt Searchill is the co-head of our Octopus Renewables team. It's about 80 people. It's invested £3 billion or so in building solar and wind farms in the UK, Europe, Australia, and it's one of the leading players in that sector. So our expansion to these new areas like renewables and other sectors in like healthcare property has often come about through good ideas from people around the organisation. And that's really what I'm most proud about. Octopus is not a business of two entrepreneurs, it's a business of hundreds of entrepreneurs. And that culture is so key. And it's also what led us into power supply. We want to make a difference to sectors where we think people are getting a bad deal, sectors where consumers are looking for something different. Financial services was like that 20 years ago, and I'd say it still is now. I think too many businesses are in it for how much money they can make rather than trying to give customers something great. And customer service was also terrible in the power supply sector. Most people hate their supplier. They hate the way it works. The whole structure of power supply, send you a bill in the post, you have to send a check back. For years, it hadn't really evolved and changed. And we thought, this is a sector we can make a real difference to. And so when we bumped into Greg Jackson, who we didn't know at the time, but when we had a coffee with him, he was telling us about his own similar vision for revolutionising the energy sector. We thought, ah, this is perfect. Why don't we team up with Greg? And so Octopus Energy was born. And Greg and his team have done a wonderful job over the past five years and growing from nothing to the point where today we've got 2 million customers, our tech platform is powering utilities in other countries around the world. And we have a real vision for playing a big role in the whole journey to net zero. It's going to take customer focus. It's going to take technology. And that, I think, is what Greg and his team can do. And how did that first meeting with Greg come about? Because that sort of serendipity is often so important for entrepreneurs. And it's been very difficult to recreate in the last year with the pandemic. But how did that meeting come about? Well, we always say to people, we're really happy to have a coffee, often with no agenda, because you never know what comes from it. Many of those coffees don't really lead anywhere. You might meet someone, you might think they're interesting, they're doing something that you couldn't imagine them being successful at. But every now and again, you meet someone where that meeting of minds is so powerful. And where it's also clear 
how we could play a role in working with them or partnering with them or investing in their business. And so we've tried to be as externally minded as we can. And maybe this is one of the learnings we've had in recent years is you can't run a business just off a spreadsheet. You can't run a business sat at your desk being purely internal. Got to get out there and meet people. That's what leads to the interesting ideas that can help revolutionize your organization. In our case, the benefit of those many, many coffees was one day Simon was introduced by someone he knew to Greg. They met to talk about all sorts of things. And near the end of that meeting, Greg happened to mention that he was really interested in energy. And it kind of went from there. These are things that you can't plan for, you can't anticipate, you can't structure. You just have to get out there with an enthusiasm for learning, trying to find people where there's scope to do something a bit different, looking for people with that curiosity, that passion, that dream that we think could be a really big part of Octopus going forward. We're always interested in finding new things that we could be doing, whether it's a different investment team that could join the business, whether it's a way of expanding what we do in other parts of financial services. Greg is always out there looking for great ideas to bring into his business, great people who can join his organization to help power it on from where it is today. And so that mentality is something I'm keen to make sure always pervades the way we think at Octopus. And that permission to learn has been a recurring thing that we've had from all the entrepreneurs on the show i just wanted to pick up on there you talked about how octopus is not just two entrepreneurs but it's almost a whole family of entrepreneurs and i know that you have a very exciting platform called springboard which allows people within the business to come forward with ideas could you talk to us a little bit more about that to me, the power to encourage people to become an entrepreneur is one of the greatest gifts that any of us who've set up a business can really have. And I'm very conscious that we were lucky. We got the chance to set up Octopus and we managed to find a way to make that work. Many people have an idea that they could turn into a business. And I'm really keen that everyone gets the chance to do that. Entrepreneurs can come in all sorts of different types and forms. Anyone anywhere around the country could have the potential to be an entrepreneur of the future. And any idea that people have that they really believe in, I think people should have a chance to give that a go. And so the Octopus Springboard concept is really about helping people in the business who want to have a go at starting their own company, have the chance to do that. Often when people said to us they had an idea, they would also say, but actually, I'm not sure I can afford to do it. I wouldn't be able to go months without earning any income, I wouldn't be able to pay my rent or pay my mortgage. And so we said, well, why don't we help you with that? We'll support you for a few months. We'll encourage you. We'll mentor you. We'll help find the right kind of training and support you might need. And we'll deal with those early few months of that financial challenge by paying you something for a while too. So you can leave without to worry about how you're going to pay your rent. And so you can dedicate yourself to trying to start a business for a few months. If it works, then brilliant. Off you go with our blessing to grow your company and we'll be cheering you on from the sidelines. Maybe we'll become bigger investors in the business too. But if it doesn't work, then we said to people, come back and do your old job at Octopus. And you would have learned so much in those few months from trying to get your business up and running that you'll be a way more powerful employee for us on the basis of those experiences. There's nothing quite like trying to set up a business to really toughen you up, to really give you all those new learnings that I think is so important in the business setting. So for us, Springboard's worked beautifully and we're really keen to keep on expanding it. When people come up to my desk with an idea about a business that they're thinking of setting up, I don't think, oh, that's a real shame. I'm going to lose that person from Octopus. I think, oh, great. If we can inspire other people to have a go at setting up a business that is such a great thing it's almost like an entrepreneurial sabbatical potentially for people yeah except it's got two sides to it so it can either morph into off they go with their new business or they can come back to their job and so there shouldn't be the kind of downside and we're trying to take away the fact that for many people they say they would love to have a go at starting a business if only they could afford to do so i think it's a real shame if there's people either in octopus or more broadly in society who 
could become an entrepreneur. It's just they can't afford to do so. I think figuring out how to crack that is going to be a really important part of how the government creates that entrepreneurial structure for the future. I think it's going to be so important for the recovery from COVID. Well, I think there's a perception that we've all become a bit more risk averse with the pandemic. And like you say, being an entrepreneur is a big risk that you're taking with it. When you came into the fund management industry 20 years ago as Octopus, you were the disruptor. And now sort of 20 years on, you're perhaps bit more part of the establishment. And I was going to ask about how you continue to be innovative and stop yourselves being disrupted as well. And would you put Springboard down to a big part of that? Yeah, Springboard is is definitely part of that. Some of the ideas people come up with are financial services related. Some are, have nothing to do with the sector that we're in. They're totally different types of ideas, and that's great. That culture of innovation is something you've got to work really hard at. The whole culture of an organisation has to be any management team's number one priority because the minute you start to lose that as a business grows, then you're going to morph into being just like any other business. And we spent 20 years trying to build and maintain the culture of octopus, where people of any age, any level of experience can come up with ideas. I remember three or four years ago, we had two youngsters, probably 21, 22, who were over from Australia on short-term visas working on our customer services team. They said to me and Simon, a couple of us, can we have half an hour of your time? We want to pitch an idea to you. And they talked very passionately about why we should create a team in Australia to start replicating down under the same success we'd had in the UK building solar and wind farms. And they were so persuasive that Within six months, we'd created a team of 10 people. We'd opened an office in Melbourne and we're underway in Australia. The idea had been kind of slightly bubbling around, but hearing these couple of 21-year-olds talk about why we should be taking those steps, they'd thought it all through. They had some really interesting ideas. They could see how we could take the experiences we had in the UK and put it to work in Australia. I think it's really important that you maintain a culture where anyone can be the source of those ideas. The next product ideas for the business or the next idea of where a new team could come from or some great idea for marketing our products or how to create the culture going when we've all been sat at home for the past year during the pandemic those ideas really do come from anywhere and so empowering people to feel their ideas will be listened to they can speak up we want to hear their ideas this isn't a sort of structure where good ideas only come from the senior management team I think businesses go really wrong when they stop listening and they think that it can be kind of dictated from the top what happens to a business. So many of the best things we've done have come about through ideas, often from some of the most inexperienced people in the company. It's so interesting. And yeah, I mean, solar panels in Australia does seem to make more sense than in the UK. I can see some arguments. Twice as many hours of daylight every year, it makes a real difference to the economics. And that simple proposition three years ago has led to the point where about six months back, we finished work building what is now Australia's largest solar farm with about $500 million of investment in it. Ideas can really lead to actions. And that is something which I think is a big part of Octopus. We are doing things that people can relate to, whether it's investing in businesses that then go on to grow and create jobs or investing in building renewable assets or care homes or whatever it might be. There's a realness to it. I think people really enjoy and appreciate you've grown to 750 people now you talked about how important the culture is what have been the challenges in keeping that entrepreneurial culture going as you've got through that many people where were the sort of tipping points that happened when you didn't know everyone or you couldn't do everyone's reviews it would be fascinating to hear about that yeah, it's a real journey that you go on as a business starts to scale I remember the day when we hired the first person into the team and that felt a really big step and a real challenge of how on earth do you bring someone in to join three founders in an organization? But pretty quickly, you get used to it. You learn the hard way about hiring people and what's good, what's 
pad, you learn pretty quick what kind of people can fit into a startup culture. And you realize actually CVs are not that useful for that because the things that are so important in a fast growing business are often things that are less valued by large companies. The kind of thing you can't necessarily teach people, the thing that you can't really tell from someone's CV. I remember when you get to maybe 50 people, you stand up at your desk, you can just about see everyone. And then as the business grows and you have more office space, you can't see everyone. I remember a really embarrassing moment when I was in the lift and I said to someone, what floor are you going on? Assuming they work for a different company on a different floor in the building. They said, well, same floor as you are. And they knew me. I didn't know them. And that was when I realized the way you run a business has to change as an organization gets bigger. You've got to work even harder at communication, even harder at culture. And you also find as a business grows, the kind of people you need change. In the early days, you need people who are generalists who can turn their hand to anything. They're willing to roll their sleeves up and just get stuck in and make things happen. And as the business grows, you need more specialists. You start to create teams that do particular things. You're hiring people with specific skills. In the first few years, I used to devote Thursday afternoons to writing checks to pay the bills and trying to figure out with no accountancy qualifications how on earth to keep our management accounts and do the books. You have to turn your hand to everything in those early times. And then you start to hire people who can do those specific roles. But I'd also say business is a team. It's not a family. And so teams have to focus on the quality of people in every position. And the thing that makes a business particularly hard is when the business is growing more quickly than some of the people in it. And that makes for hard choices about when you have to upgrade people in particular roles or make changes to people. It's not easy to do, but you've got to do it. You've got to keep the business moving forwards. And the only thing that is going to hold you back, in my view, is not keeping the quality of people going fast enough. The success of the business is going to be driven by the people in it. And you've got to remember that all the time. You've got to focus relentlessly on the culture. You've got to focus really hard on recruitment and then coaching people, training them, developing them. And I'd also say setting objectives, making sure everyone in the business knows what direction they're going in, what's expected of them, what we need them to achieve in that year. And everyone needs to know how the role they play ties into the organization as a whole. One of the things that we used to show people when they joined the business was a video of JFK announcing that the US was going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade how that inspired people so a few years later when he went on a visit to a factory at nasa so the story goes he saw someone brushing the floor of the factory and he said to that person what are you doing and rather than the guy saying i'm a you know i'm a janitor i'm brushing the floor he said i'm helping put a man on the moon and that is the kind of culture of we're all in this together we all know what we're shooting for as a business that's the kind of culture that you really need as an organization yeah that is so inspiring to be able to think about that. When it comes to recruitment, how does that change? Because obviously a lot of the listeners to this show are looking for potentially next steps, some moving out of corporates to startups or scale-ups even. We even have university students listening and apprentices as well. How can you go about putting yourself out there? I mean, obviously it's changed dramatically in the 20 years you've been running Octopus, but how can people find out about the opportunities that are available and assess their own skill sets as well because that's often a real challenge for people is that sometimes it's not so easy to assess your own skills. No, it's not easy. And it's quite hard to relate to what businesses want. And an organisation like Octopus, we have so many different types of roles, people with different skills and backgrounds. What makes an organisation strong is the strength of that cohesive capability of everyone in the company. When I'm talking to people, I want to be wowed by people. I'm looking to bring people into the organisation who can make a real difference. People you just know are going to add something to the organisation. That bar is quite high and it should be. I think where companies go wrong is when they say, oh, we've interviewed 10 people for the role, we're going to hire the best one we found well is that best person you found out of those 10 actually any good if not keep looking we want to make sure that bar is really high so for us i'm thinking is that person someone i'd love to have in the organization can i imagine them bringing some new skills do they have that combination of that sort of intellect 
curiosity, drive, determination, work ethic. Do they have a spark about them? You sort of know it when you see it. It's great when you bring someone into the company and years later, they've done some amazing things. You think, yeah, I was right about them. They really did add something. It doesn't happen very often when you meet someone who creates that kind of feeling. But when you see people like that, you've got to move heaven and earth to bring them into your company because they are the people who can really get things done. They'll be the source of ideas. They're the future leaders. And it really is about different ways of thinking, different ideas. You're not hiring clones. You shouldn't just hire people who've got the same kind of university, the same kind of course. You need to hire people who have got something a bit different to offer. And I think that's where, again, a lot of companies, they develop a kind of model that they think works. And then they hire as many people as they can who fit that description. I'm not interested in their CV. I'm interested in talking to them and figuring out what makes them tick, what makes them someone who I could imagine joining our business and bringing something different to it. And I was going to ask about that process of the CV because it feels a very outdated model for A, how careers now look as well, but even just the way that people approach them. Is there a way that you've changed your hiring over the years? I know that some startup founders are now talking about the CV last principle and blind recruiting, not looking at names, not looking at CVs, getting them to answer questions about the business and taking it that way forward. You you must have adapted it. I suppose the question is, how have you adapted that over the 20 years of hiring? Yeah, increasingly, that's the way a lot of hiring is is done. I think it has to be. For me, there have been a few pivotal times. I remember on occasion, you'd read someone's CV going back 10, 15 years, and you think, wow, they sound amazing. I'm really looking forward to meeting them. I know they're going to be great. I'm sure we're going to want to hire them. And you meet them, and they're nothing like their CV. You think, how on earth can that person have such an impressive CV? And yet, interview in a way that I just think, no, I can't imagine ever wanting to work with them. And equally, the other way around. Sometimes people who on paper had qualifications or background or experience that just didn't sound particularly inspiring. And they're the most amazing person we meet in person. I've realized that CVs just don't give a good read on people. The more you can do, I think, to really get to the heart of what makes someone who they are. What can they really offer? What are they passionate about? What have they done in life that's interesting and different? Those are things you want to get from them. And CVs just don't really do that. So getting people to make videos about themselves, blind recruiting. I think really important now to have gender balance shortlists to get a cross-section of your organization involved in the recruitment. You want to make your business feel as welcoming as it possibly can to people of any background. And I think that's one of the failings, really, of society as a whole in the UK for the last 10, 20 years is we've not done a great job of tapping into the skills and resources and know-how that people have. And I think organizations have hired from a very narrow field. And I think that's something which absolutely has to change. We all need to be much more conscious of people's different upbringings, different things that people can offer. And I know all the teams at Octopus are really focused on that now. It's very important, the whole issue of diversity. And sometimes we are too simplistic the way that we characterise diversity as well. And I think you're right in terms of trying to get as many different backgrounds and experiences and all of these things really help shape people's viewpoints. And that is so important to any organisation or company that wants to progress. In terms of looking to the future, you've already disrupted a number of industries over the last five to 10 years in particular. Where do you see the opportunities for the rest of the decade and beyond that? I mean, one of the things that I always think about is you look at some of the biggest companies that have developed over the last 15 years in terms of Spotify, Netflix, Facebook. They're all entertainment companies. And actually, people don't spend vast amounts on entertainment. They spend more on energy, education, and transport, and actual industries like that, which are even less disrupted. And so I'd be fascinated to hear about where you think 
the opportunities are for the coming decade and beyond? Well, I think there absolutely is enormous scope for disruption in all those sectors you mentioned. Any sector that thinks it's immune to the impact of disruption, they're just kidding themselves because technology really has the scope to revolutionise pretty much every part of our lives, every part of the economy. For us, we're really excited by what we can do in financial services and in energy. But I would hesitate to say that we're going to do certain things or not do certain things because in the end, it comes down to the people who can make that happen. So if you said to me 10 years ago, will Octopus ever be in the energy sector? I'd have probably laughed at you and said, well, of course not. But in the end, we had an idea and then we met Greg. And those two things together came to make Octopus Energy possible. And without either of those, it wouldn't have happened. Where does that idea generation come from? How do you have a structure in place that develops that? We are very attuned to customers. I think every business would tell you they really care about customers. Very few businesses live that and breathe that. If you ask your listeners to name companies that they think really do an amazing job of looking after their customers, you wouldn't get very many names back. There aren't many businesses that I think absolutely are utterly customer-centric in what they do. Really not many. That is where the opportunity is for me. Finding areas, sectors where customers get a bad deal, companies just take them for granted, or where things are done in a very outdated kind of way. That's true of so many parts of the economy nowadays. One sector that I think is going to see a lot of change in the years ahead is healthcare. It's an enormous part of GDP. Technology has got a role to play. I don't think it's gone anywhere near as far as it's going to. Many of the things I remember hearing about in my lectures at university when I studied biochem and pharmacology 25, 30 years ago, they're now starting to come into everyday life. What is possible now with technology is incredible. We've just brought a team into Octopus who specialise in healthcare technology because I think there's going to be incredible opportunities to invest into that sector in the years ahead. It's something we're really excited by. But other sectors have got the same opportunity too. That's part of the excitement of investment. Things never stand still. There's always change going on. And it's about spotting those sectors and then figuring what are we going to do about it? How are we going to create a team to capitalise on that? Whether it's building a business in that sector or creating a fund management team to invest into it. Just to pick up on the healthcare side of things, how much does culture come into this? And I know pre the pandemic, you spent a huge amount of your time on a plane traveling around the world, Australia, the States, Japan. How much does culture matter when it comes to sectors? We have the NHS, which is held in quite high regard, and it has become such a mainstay of the British institution with that. And when governments or companies try and innovate in it, they can often be met with scepticism about how they're tackling the NHS. So I'd just love to hear where you think the opportunities for the UK are when it comes to healthcare innovation. People in the UK are rightly very possessive, very protective of the NHS. And certainly when you look at the experience that many other countries have, I think we probably are right to be. But you also see the role that technology has played over the past year. So my sister-in-law and brother are both doctors. My sister-in-law works in a very rural part of the southwest. And when the pandemic hit, they had to swap to doing a lot of online consultations. She'd never done that before. But she said, this is actually really pretty revolutionary. I don't have to drive 10 or 15 miles to see a patient. I can have a quick check-in with them on Zoom and see how they are. And it makes her far more efficient. And it means she can get to see more patients per day. Now, some of that will go back to in-person consultations again, I'm sure. But some of this new way of working will remain part of the culture going forwards. Where I think particular change is needed is being open-minded to looking at ways in which a small amount of investment can have a big payback. And I know over the years, we've seen many medtech businesses that would say they had a really strong economic case, but they couldn't persuade the NHS to take up their technology. And I think creating a culture where those businesses get more of a fair hearing is going to become important. But you're right, different countries, different cultures have different ways of doing things. And that's part of the challenge of an entrepreneur is where's the best market for what you do? Is it in your home country or not? 
Many of the businesses that we back see the US as a land of immense opportunity, but very hard to dabble in a market like the US. You've got to be fully committed if you want to go international as an entrepreneur. You've got to recognize the changes that will mean, and you've got to do it quickly, generally, to make sure that you don't find that your ideas are taken up by other businesses. Whether you go international as an entrepreneur is one of those big themes that you've got to address. And what would your advice be to the UK government? We sit at this huge reset moment in British politics post-Brexit, post-COVID, to kind of remake the nation state. What is your advice to the Chancellor and Prime Minister about how they can go about doing it? Build back better, as the phrase goes. Absolutely. And I think we're going to keep hearing a lot more from that phrase. To my mind, the real fundamental long-term challenge in the UK is our economic growth rate is just too low. And it's been that way for quite a long time now. People in government have talked about productivity for a while. The central problem, I think, is that we need to really focus on encouraging entrepreneurs. The tendency for governments is normally to focus more on large companies. Those are the companies they come into more contact with. Large companies have got big, deep pockets to focus on lobbying governments. They tend to have more contact. And so the natural assumption in government is, yeah, big companies, they're the ones we need to get to. Reality is most large companies are not creating jobs. It's not where economic growth will come from. So I would throw everything at trying to create the most entrepreneurial culture we possibly can. Given the events of the past year, now is the time to really kitchen sink it. I wouldn't leave any stone unturned in trying to create growth. And so I think we need to create an environment based on making it really easy for people to start companies. I would take the springboard concept I talked about earlier and try and turn it into a national program. It's a real shame that 80% of people who say they would like to have a go at starting a company can't because they don't have enough savings to fall back on. That is where government could play a role in catalyzing change. Government could create a bit of financial support for people, could create a mentoring structure, could create online skills training, package up some of the other initiatives government's already created so that anyone anywhere, no matter what their idea is or what their background is or their gender or their ethnicity, I'd love anyone to feel that they could have a go at starting a business. And if we can do that, we can create a new army of entrepreneurs, even if most people only go on to employ themselves. That is still people who are not fishing in the pool of jobs from existing companies. And obviously, the bigger that hopper is of startups, out of that hopper will emerge businesses that go on to employ five or 10 or 50, 100, 1,000 people. And that is where I think economic growth will come from. So if I was in number 10 and number 11, I'd be spending a lot of my time trying to figure out how do we harness that entrepreneurial instinct that I think so many people in the UK have and unleash those animal spirits. That's what could really get the economic growth going. And the more we can do that, then the less pressure there'll be on the chance of things like increasing tax rates and so on. Exactly. Are there any other ideas that you've seen across the globe that you think that have worked particularly well? I always remember when I was in government, if an idea had worked in another country, it was always far easier to get it through the various systems that were in place because there was evidence policy making behind it. And I just wonder if in all your international globe trotting, there's something that you've seen where you've thought that works really well, we should bring that here in the UK. Well, I think we actually have some pretty good frameworks already in the UK. So often when I've been abroad, I've found people asking me about things like the Venture Capital Trust Scheme and the EIS, which have created an environment of early stage funding for businesses, I think is really quite powerful. So I'd certainly be saying to government, preserve those, nurture those, see if they can be expanded. We've been managing Venture Capital Trusts now for 20 years, and they're a great way of channeling capital to early stage entrepreneurs. The key challenges for any person starting a business are access to skills and access to finance. And 
And I think governments need to focus on getting both of those things right. Something like 40% of the businesses that we've backed have got a non-UK person as the founder or CEO. So we've managed in this country to create an environment which has been really attractive to entrepreneurs over the last 10, 15 years. We need to preserve that now, need to expand it and enhance it. And in a post-Brexit world, where perhaps the perception of people is outside the UK is that the UK is turned in a particular direction, I think we need to be shouting really loudly that we're open for business as a country and that we really are trying to encourage global entrepreneurs to see a future for building a business in the UK. And then capital, of course, is that other key thing. And forever, all the time I've been working, there's always been this perception that somewhere in that trajectory from startup early stage business through to high growth business that's really scaling internationally there's always been a sense that somewhere there's a lack of capital for entrepreneurs we've now got a pretty good environment for early stage businesses i think the focus has shifted a bit more to scale ups to those businesses that need to raise a second third fourth fifth round to really turbocharge their growth that's where the opportunity is and so i'd encourage government to look at where can other pools of capital come from how can we encourage people in the uk to put some of their money to work in those kind of businesses that i think will make a real difference so we think there's scope to look at products like ISAs, 300 billion pounds of British public savings is wrapped up in ISA. Something like 20 million of us have an ISA. And if even only a small amount of that money could be accessible to people starting businesses, that'd be really powerful. At the moment, you can't do that. ISAs can't invest in uncoated companies. A rule change will be needed. But I think it'd be the kind of rule change that would open up more capital for businesses and could make a difference. Yes, not too complicated to potentially achieve that either, which is quite exciting. Exactly. Getting people more related to the companies that they invest in, I think, is really important as well. I think one of the challenges with ISA investments is that often ends up in various global funds, etc. And people can feel quite disconnected from where their money actually is. And that isn't particularly healthy over the long term, I think. The less sophisticated investors that don't spend all their time thinking about it, the more retail investors. So I think it's a really good point. I think one of the big trends at the moment is people really care about how their money is invested, where it's invested. One of the things that I think has changed over the past year is the societal expectations of businesses have continued to change. People want businesses to do some good. I think they want their capital to be deployed locally. They want to feel that their money is helping to back local businesses or helping to deliver the journey to net zero by investing in things like renewables. There's a real sense that how money is used is now far more important than it would have been in the past. Companies have got to get good at telling the story about how they're investing money and what difference it makes, what impact it has. And I think that's part of the attraction to me of opening up ISAs. It would be a relatively simple rule change. And I think it could make a real difference to allow people to feel that some of their money is being used to back people who may be building a business in their town or their county. And I think that's something people could really relate to. I think it is. I think that everyone has become more connected to their local community as a result of the last year. And everyone wants to see it thrive and that is partly by being a customer of local independent stores and that side of things but i think you're right that there'll be a resurgence in people wanting to be able to do more and providing capital in some form for that could be a really interesting development i think yeah i totally agree we're seeing that trend it's really real it's really powerful it encompasses everything from how we spend our money in the local communities people wanting to back and support people starting a business in their community And as we come out of the pandemic, one of the interesting things will be, can we use high streets differently? Can we create hubs for entrepreneurs in disused shops? That sort of idea of how do you really capture an opportunity for people to build a business anywhere? That's going to be such an important part of, I think, the local regeneration and plays into that build back better agenda that the government has. Yeah, I think the high streets is a big thorny issue that governments have 
struggle to tackle partly because of the innovation that's been happening but is a really big opportunity what I mean, you talk there about entrepreneurial hubs perhaps opening in old shop sites and so on. What other predictions do you have for the high street over the next few years? Well, I think there's also an opportunity for high streets to become more attractive as people spend less time in city centres. So in an era when maybe we aren't all going to be commuting into desks in offices in city centres in future, local high streets should be able to capture more of our expenditure closer to where people live. I think it's going to change some patterns. Commuter towns may no longer be dead during the week when we're all around closer to home a lot more uh, to become a place where we spend more of our money. So I think that's going to be one of the big trends. The idea that people are willing to back local businesses is going to be more prevalent. And also the idea that everything now can be done online. Anyone can set a business up anywhere, selling things or offering a service, whatever it may be. The idea that you need to be in London to build a business, for example. I'm involved with a payments business that used to be based 25 miles outside London until two or three years ago. It then moved its office into London because it felt that was where it needed to be to access the tech talent that it needed. It's now totally closed its office. It's going to be run in a virtual way going forwards. So people will be able to work for that business from anywhere. And that means it opens up opportunities for people who live all over the UK to work for that business. Whereas until a year ago, if you didn't live within commuting distance of London, you couldn't. So how we access talent for people running businesses, the opportunities that will give for people, it's really going to transform things. And I think, again, it plays that levelling up that we hear so much about from our politicians. Yes, I think it's incredibly exciting that access to talent and talent being able to live anywhere will be a really interesting development for the next few years. What are Octopus's plans for when you head back and so on? You know, Obviously, you employ a huge number of people in central London. How do you think your plans will evolve? Yeah, certainly within the fund management side of the business, I think in many ways, it's too soon to tell. For one, I'm tired of sitting at the same desk day after day, staring out the window at the hedge just outside. I'm looking forward to being back in the office. But I think the idea that we'll all go back in and be back in London five days a week, I suspect it won't be like that. But I also think it's too hard to be really dogmatic and insist, well, everyone's got to be in the office a certain number of days of the week, or some businesses making calls that everyone's going to be in all the time, or no one's going to be in and they're going to become entirely virtual. I think we'll be somewhere in between. But for different roles, for different teams, for different people, what they want will be different. And I'm really conscious that for many people, the past year has been really difficult. Many people have got mental health challenges. I think all of us, to some extent, have got issues as a result of the impact of the past year. What that means to businesses, I suspect, will take some time to really emerge and evolve. One thing I'm worried about is the challenge of doing meetings that we've all been doing happily on Zoom or Microsoft Teams, where everyone is doing it virtually. When you've got three or four people sat in a meeting room and three or four people on Zoom, I think those meetings actually are more dysfunctional than having everyone in the same meeting room or having everyone on Zoom. And so how companies juggle those, what we use the office for and what we don't will change. So I, I think a lot of that's going to evolve in the months ahead. And we're certainly keen not to try and impose too many rules around it before we see just how it plays out. My theory is that people are going to be keen to be back in the office because I think they will remind themselves all the things they enjoy about the office, seeing their friends, being near people, the camaraderie, the spirit you get from being in the office, the ability to go for a drink after work with colleagues. Those things are really powerful parts of what being in the office is around. It's not just to do your work sat at your computer. It's everything else that comes from it. It's the little interactions, the snippets of innovation, the ideas that come about from talking to people. We need to recapture that spirit again. So I think the office isn't dead. Still got an important role to play in achieving all of those things. I'm in 100% agreement with you on that and can't wait to be able to go and meet people physically again. It's going to be a big 
Absolutely. Big improvement. Just a quick couple of final questions. If you were in your 20s and your formative years now in the year 2021, what would your advice be to yourself? Where do you think that Chris would be looking? What would he be trying to start his career with? Some of the big trends I've noticed when I left university, we almost all wanted to get jobs with big financial services companies, management consultancies, investment banks, law firms, accountancy firms, and almost everyone I knew did that. And yet many people I know, they have a feeling that really their careers have been a bit unfulfilled, yet they're now in their mid-40s, stuck doing a job they've done for 20-odd years, and they can't easily change. I think it's a real shame. So my absolute advice to anyone would be, make sure you find something that you really enjoy doing. You want to wake up in the morning excited by what you're going to be spending the day doing. Recent times have created so many new opportunities. All sorts of startups are going to be exciting places to work. Trends like climate change, that is an enormous area. It's going to take many decades for the climate change war to be fought and won. And that's going to create enormous opportunities for people to play all sorts of different roles in that. So I think I'd certainly be looking at how I could build a business to play a part in tackling climate change. I think that is the trend that's going to define the next 20 years. And the idea that society's expectations of business have changed phenomenally over the years. And I think that is going to create new opportunities to do things differently, to build businesses that people relate to, to build businesses that focus on customers in a modern digital kind of way. Every day, new businesses are being created. Thousands have sprung up over the past year. Innovation never dies. I would encourage people to think about what do they enjoy doing? Where do they think they can make a difference? You don't need a unique idea to start a business. Very few businesses do anything genuinely unique. Nothing that Octopus does is really unique. But what is unique about us is how we go about doing it, our relentless focus on customer service. But those things are ideas that other people could adopt too. And I'd encourage people to really find something they believe in, find a cause that you're really passionate about. I agree. And we will certainly be endeavouring at Jimmy's Jobs of the Future to try and explain all those opportunities that are out there, because I think that is the key difference. You know, Even from when I graduated just over a decade ago, there are now even more opportunities than there were then. But it's just hard trying to navigate all of them and work out when you are a bit younger and inexperienced, where are the really great opportunities. Pete Flint on one of our episodes had a great line, though, I thought on career advice, where he talked about following a sector rather than following a company necessarily go into a sector, learn it, understand it, build a contact space. And then if that company doesn't work out, then you can still take that somewhere else. And I think your point there about the climate change war is a really interesting one on that. If you work in that for a few years, you will develop skills and knowledge that will be transferable because this is an issue that isn't going away. Exactly. You know, my father worked at the same organisation. He worked at Midland Bank that then became HSBC all his life from when he was 18 until when he retired. The idea now for someone joining an organization they're going to work there all their career we just moved on from that very very few businesses that is going to be the case anymore we're all going to do different things so i would encourage people to get different experiences and if you're in a role you don't enjoy then do something about that i would hate for anyone to be stuck in a job they weren't passionate about there's so many opportunities out there that if you try something it's not for you then move on but make sure you learn something from every experience you have that will help you become a more successful person in whatever job you go on to and one day i think everyone should be able to find something that really does work for them that does tick all the boxes for them that really gives them the opportunities that they're looking for and is there a book that you have found particularly inspiring lately or on your journey whilst creating octopus that has leveled some particular inspiration to you yeah, I'm not sure there's been a single book. I've always enjoyed reading. I think a lot of people in fund management are avid consumers of information. 
it's what appeals to people in this sector. I enjoy reading books about businesses, biographies of people who built great companies. Whether it's actually 100 years ago or very recently, you can always learn something from that. Reading about economic crises of the past, how countries recovered. I read a great book about Spanish flu, which I probably read about April 2020, just when the pandemic was kicking off here. And it was incredible in that book how some of the same issues they dealt with 100 years ago were true of this pandemic. Yeah, stuff like countries in lockdown quickly did better than those that took their time, that it was important not to release from lockdown too soon. You can always learn from history in that way. That book also talked about the debate around whether kids were safer in school or better off being at home and the importance of free school lunches during the pandemic of Spanish flu. So incredible how history repeats itself. 100 years later, the same kind of issues. I also like reading about health. So I read a fascinating book recently about the life work of somebody researching potential cures for Alzheimer's, an amazing person. Their dedication for 40 years to trying to tackle such a debilitating condition. For me, a career in working in labs wasn't what I wanted to do, but I have immense respect for people who do because they're the ones developing the solutions that are going to be important for us. But outside of all of those, I love reading about people who've done something totally unique. Someone I knew actually as a teenager who lived quite near me as kids, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Europe United which was all about a year he spent traveling to every single country in Europe to watch a game of football. He's a mad keen football fan. And he wanted to combine watching a match in every country with a bit of a travelogue. It's a great read. I wish I had the time to do something like that myself. So I think you can kind of learn something from all sorts of different books. And I think that curiosity and the insights you can glean from reading all sorts of different things to me is important, not just a fixation on books of one type. The Europe United book sounds fascinating. I will endeavour to dig that out. I've often thought there's a book following Derby County away throughout the entire season and going to all these different parts of England and kind of understanding it a bit more. I think it could be a very clever idea. I will endeavour to have a look at it. Thanks, Chris, so much for joining us. It would be great if we can do this in person later in the year because I know that listeners will have found that a really fascinating insight into the mind of an entrepreneur and, and what changes we may see coming down the road as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, let's hope the conditions allow. It'd be great to do things in person once again. I'm absolutely tired of being confined to barracks. Certainly keen to get back out there again into the real world. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't just have to be for them. It could be that they work at school, college, or they're just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills. And thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork.